Well, we are going through the book of Luke, where today you'll see the baptism of Jesus, not because he needed to repent for any of his own sins, but because he wanted to identify with us at the start of his ministry that would ultimately lead him to become sin for us by dying on the cross in our place. So turn with me to Luke chapter 3. And you follow along as I begin reading in verse 15. Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, who he was living with, for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Well, here's the first thing I want you to see from this passage. Number one. God's word stirs up questions and feeds a sense of expectation. It does both. It stirs up questions. If you're in the habit of reading God's word, surely you would recognize this. The more you read it, I do not find I have no more questions. It stirs up questions. But here's what I do find it does. Oh my goodness, it feeds my sense of expectation. I don't stop looking for his coming. I don't stop hoping. I don't stop being in a posture of leaning forward. It just causes me more and more and more. But both of these things will happen as you dig into God's word. And that's not a new thing. That's how it was. That's how it is. Look at verse 15. As the people were in expectation... And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. See, they were reading their Old Testament scriptures. And because they were, it caused them to be living expectantly, hoping for the first coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the sent one. Who's going to take care of this sin problem? It's been promised and promised and promised. When's he going to come? So they had expectation, but they had questions Because reading the Old Testament scriptures didn't answer all their questions about, but when and where and what would he look like? What would he do first? And so if you think about it, 
I know we have far more than they did. We've got the New Testament canon, praise God. We've got the Holy Spirit living in us, not just coming upon us in moments to help us. But if you were honest, you'd have to admit, right? The fact that we know more than they do does not mean we have all the details, right? We now, here's what happens with us. We now live with hopeful expectation about his second coming, right? So they were reading the Old Testament and looking for him. Who is he? When's he coming? What will he look like? What will he do first? Now we read books like Revelation. When you read Revelation, is that just like, oh, stick the landing. I got it figured out. I'll tell you who the Antichrist is, who the beast is, what Russia's going to do, China, America. Woo, talk to me. No, we read Revelation and 2 Thessalonians and Matthew 24 and other places. And yes, we're convinced. Oh my goodness, praise God. We know who wins. We know who's sitting on the throne. We know how he'll preserve his people through any kind of time, but we still don't have all the details about when and where and how, even though some Christians act like they do with their charts and graphs, but they don't. They don't. Because I hope you realize, I know, it's, I know it's a point of frustration for us as human beings, God never intended to answer all of our questions. Do you know that? If he, if he intended that, we would have a much longer and different kind of book than what we have. You think about it, even the way it's put together. Here's what he did intend to do. Point number two. He intended to answer the biggest question about our biggest problem. What's our biggest problem? Oh, thank you. My church family has heard me say this, I think. What's our biggest problem? The sin problem that separates us from a holy God. God intended to answer that question. And is it fuzzy how he intends to take care of that? Is that an issue where we're like, I'm not sure what he meant. Should I look to Jesus? Did Jesus do something about this? He did something, but I'm not sure he did everything that was necessary. That is not fuzzy. Praise God. And that's why, if you think about it, he gives us four, not one, four books in the Bible that detail who Jesus is, what he said, what he did. Who Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Did you ever think about it? We don't get four books like Revelation. Give me four monster books, please. Give me four books with amazing, weird, mind-blowing metaphors. No, it gives us one of those. And I tell you, it's still a great book to read because you will end up on your knees saying, oh my goodness, there is an almighty God in charge and his wrath is something I don't want to be here for. I take that away from Revelation. I may not understand all the details, but I still take away something really, really helpful. He reigns, he rules, and I will not experience his wrath or judgment when I know Jesus. He intended to answer our biggest question about our biggest problem. That's what he's doing in verse 22. When he says, that's what he's doing when he affirms who Jesus is at his baptism. Look at it in verse 22. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved 
Son, with you I am well pleased. Oh, there had been prophets and priests and kings and great men and women, but nothing like this had ever been said before about anyone else. Nor will it ever be said again about anyone else. Jesus, I hope you realize the Ten Commandments were never given to save us. They were given to show us our need for a Savior. And the blood of bulls and goats and heifers and pigeons and doves could never truly take away our guilt or cleanse our conscience. So God sent someone who could. Once and for all. Once and for all. Once and for all. Once and for all. This statement by God the Father publicly about His Son is filled with such good news. And what we don't realize that the crowd recognized immediately because they knew their Bibles better than we do today, especially their Old Testament, is that this statement by God the Father is actually, he's quoting Old Testament Scripture and applying it to his Son. God the Father is quoting an echo of Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. Psalm 2 is an amazing messianic psalm. Handel wrote one whole song in his Messiah about it. Oh, it's one of my favorites every year. Where God the Father in Psalm 2 says, You are my son and I've given the nations to you and you are king. The nation, it's, it's a psalm that says the nations rage. They rage and they try to buck the rule and reign of God Almighty. And it says, God laughs from the heavens. He says, you are my son and I've given the nations to you for you to reign as king. And then it's an echo of Isaiah 42 where Isaiah talks about a suffering servant who will come. He begins in 42 and he he gives additional pieces along the way until finally in Isaiah 53, he talks about this suffering servant who will fully satisfy a holy God by paying the price for our sin with his own life. He became sin for us. He takes the wrath of God in our place. This is what God the Father was doing, pulling together two Old Testament places and saying, he's here. This is him. He's going to do both of these things. And so what does this affirmation of Jesus have to do with us? I prayed and I could have, I could have made this message more digging into. So, yes, he's the son of God. What about the deity of Christ? And there's a place for that. I felt more inclined to say, So what? How does that affect us? That he has this incredible sonship as a beloved son, that he has fully pleased the father. How does that affect us? That's the question I want to ask and answer with the remaining of our time. My answer, what's that have to do with us? Everything. Everything. Because after God the father affirmed the identity of his son... Jesus didn't just walk around Palestine 
saying over and over, I'm the one, I'm the one, I'm the beloved one. He loves me, he loves me. He began to proclaim, come to me because sinners, sinners can become sons who are loved and accepted and forgiven. He began to proclaim a radical message because he wanted us to have what he has. He wanted us to have what he has. And so number three, Jesus came to change who you are and how you live now in this life. Some of you, some of you, you've missed it as believers. You know his death and resurrection changes where you'll end up in eternity. Praise God, I'm not going to hell. And that is amazing news. But God intended so much more for us and Jesus purchased so much more for us. The Bible teaches that he wanted us to live radically different now because of his death and resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father. He wanted us to experience, even in a broken world, a measure now of fellowship and love and acceptance with God the Father like what Jesus has. That's what you see taught in the New Testament. And so, what would it look like? Here's what I want to do. What would it look like to no longer be an enemy of God, but but to be an adopted son who is loved and fully in the family, accepted, loved, accepted, loved. What would that look like? Well, here's the first thing I want you to see. When you get a hold of your sonship because of your relationship with Jesus, please know it's all about what Jesus did to forgive you and it's all about what Jesus did to give you this sonship. It's not he forgives you and then there's certain things you do to get to this level of adoption and love and sonship. Nope. He purchased not just forgiveness of sins, but he, he purchased this relationship that he wants you to have with the Father now, not one day, someday. When this gets a hold of you, Number one, you'll have a new sense of worth and identity. A new sense of worth and identity in your life. See, the Bible teaches that the moment you put your trust in Jesus, all Christians don't understand this or teach it, but I believe the Bible teaches it. The moment you put your trust in Jesus, you get his spirit living in you. That is not a second tier, something else happens later. I pray for a special blessing. I nope. The moment you put your trust in Jesus, you get his spirit living in you. And so here's what I want you to understand. What's he doing? What is he doing? We went through the book of Acts and we saw one of the number one things the spirit does is he wants to give you boldness to proclaim the gospel. You'll have boldness that you didn't have before. But I want you to understand that's not the only thing he does. In fact, what I'm bringing you today, if this doesn't happen in your life, you'll never be bold. 
this identity of knowing I am fully accepted. I'm fully accepted and loved. I don't have to earn it or keep it to stay in the family. It's done because of Jesus Christ and can never be undone by anything about me. When this gets a hold of you that I'm bringing to you today, the reason it matters so much is you'll begin to live with greater gusto, freedom, take risks, be more bold. Because when you know what he says about you and thinks about you, you don't care as much about what other people say and think. You have a freedom. I'm not talking about obnoxious. Some of you do that all by yourself with your personality. I'm talking about a gracious, loving, enthusiastic, passionate freedom and joy and peace that would cause people to say, what do you have that I don't have? How do you live like that? What is going on in your life? He wants us to have that because the spirit, when he sets up residence in your heart, the spirit begins to speak to you about who you are now as his beloved son or daughter. So here's what I want to say to some of you. If you're not hearing that, you either don't have his spirit or you're not listening well. Or here's what I find. You keep arguing him with him and shouting him down. You keep arguing back and shouting him down. Yeah, but you don't understand. You don't know. I know I'm forgiven, but I'm just barely in the family of God. Oh, if you knew. Oh, I'm not. I'm in a different category than other people. You're either not listening. You don't have the spirit. Or you keep arguing back and shouting him down. Because one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit. It's on his job description. He's all about it. Is to speak to you about who you are now in Christ and what you have. Who you are now in Christ and what you have. To give you an assurance of your new identity as a son and daughter. Now. Why would that be so important to him? Why would we need this? Well, some of you know why more than others. It's because often before you come to Christ, you've spent a lifetime thinking and saying horrible things to yourself about yourself. And that doesn't just all go away immediately. You, you've fallen into a pattern of thinking and saying Horrible things about yourself. Or let me compound that. My heart breaks for many of you. Or you were raised and shaped by people who should have been loving you. But they shaped you and your identity in horrible and twisted ways by the things they kept saying to you. You'll never amount to anything. It's your fault that we're where we are as a family. It's your fault that mom died. It's your We live in a broken world. Some of you have been shaped and twisted in horrible ways by things that people who should have cared and protected and encouraged you, what they said to you. And you have started to believe it about yourself. All of that is not shed immediately. You'll need God's spirit. But here's the other thing. I know I say this a lot, but until Jesus comes, I'm going to keep doing it. Guess what the Spirit eats and feeds on? You want to hear more from the Spirit? He uses God's Word. So for some of you, He's starving. He's in there saying, feed me and I'll talk to you. Feed me and I'll talk to you. But you just give Him some more, the Discovery Channel. Feed me, History Channel. Feed me, 
a new original Netflix series. Feed me! Another blog about politics in America. Feed me! He takes God's word. These truths about who we are now, they're in God's word. And as you read them, you'll say, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. No, I don't feel like that's true. I wouldn't think that about myself. But here's what he says. And the spirit of God takes the word of God and starts to renew your mind. It takes time. It takes time. But the spirit of God uses the word of God to renew your mind. Give him something to work with. He wants you to know who you are now in Christ. In fact, I would be so bold as to say this. Do you realize? Do you realize that God the Father actually longs for you to experientially know his love for you? Not academically. I know you'd say, I know God is love. I, I know on paper what he says about. He longs for you as his forgiven child to not just see yourself as forgiven, but held at arm's length, but to experientially know his love for you. And it pains him when you don't. Because he's a good God. I know we've got bad dads in our world. But stay with me for a minute with a good dad. Not a perfect dad. But a good dad. Would it not break a dad's heart if they discovered that the child did not believe he loved him? I'll never forget one time that Garrett, when he was young, preteen, whatever, just made an offhanded comment about some conversation he had at Boy Scouts. He said, oh man... I don't know my dad like other, like other boys know their dad. That broke my heart. I sought to change that. Why? Because I love Garrett. I want him to know me and know I love him. I started playing chess with him. I found things we could do together. And by the way, he, he liked that. Don't say, oh, great. What kind of dad is that? He wanted to. With classical music on. In fact, the other night he was over and he's 25 years old and he said, Dad, get out the chessboard. Can we play chess and put on classical music? Put on Albanoni. That's what I always played. I looked for things we could do to change that. It broke my heart when Vicky, I think it was Vicky that said, we were riding in the car, I was bringing home from Boy Scouts and he said that. I love him. It pained me to think that he didn't really know where he stood with me and that I love him. All right, ramp that up infinitesimally. Our God is so much better of a father than I am. It pains him for you not to know experientially how much he loves you. Because the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ did not just purchase your forgiveness. It purchased your adoption and sonship into his favor and love and acceptance. He wants you to get it all. He wants you to get it all. And Jesus died for all of that. But some of you. I know because I've been a pastor for over 30 years. I meet with people. I try to help people. 
Oh yeah, there's plenty of people that are confused about how to get saved. Guess what? There's just as many that are totally confused about who they are after they get saved. And our enemy just beats them up, marginalizes them, keeps them semi-paralyzed in life, combing over their own lives, never sure of where they stand with God. There are some of you that limp along as nothing more than alienated but forgiven sinners. Alienated but forgiven. Who could lose that status at any moment if God changed his mind. And he just might because I'm still such a mess. In your mind, you are barely in the kingdom of God. I'm barely in the family of God. I'm in but barely, barely. In other words, in your mind, I'm not in the big house at the big table where the lights are on and the food is great and there's laughter and music. I'm outside the big house. I'm on the property, but I'm in a pup tent. And at any moment, some security person could say, what are you doing here? And run me off like a squatter, someone who just came over the wall that shouldn't be there. What about you? I'm not asking, do you know your sins are forgiven because of Jesus? I'm asking you, do you know how much God the Father loves you and wants you in the big house, at the big table, in his presence? Because what Jesus did to forgive your sins is also what Jesus has done to cause you to be fully treated with full rights and inheritance and blessing and favor. Because everything that is Jesus's is yours now. It's not that you deserve it. You don't. It's not that you have to keep earning it. You don't. Just like forgiveness was not based on you, but Jesus, your standing and status and position now as an adopted son or daughter is because of Jesus who intercedes day and night and says, she is mine. She's mine. She's mine. He's mine. He's mine. I know he's a mess. He's mine. He doesn't pretend. God wants us to experience more because here's what happens. You start to live very differently with a free. You want other people to have this. Some of you, the reason it's so hard for you to talk about the gospel is because you don't have the full understanding of what happened in your life. So you're not that excited about it. I know you should be. Like, I know I'm not going to hell, but man, life's still really hard. It changes how you live now. Now. You say, Brad, did you just make this up because it's been such a hard year? No. This is in the Bible. The Bible teaches this, you guys. That's what Paul was talking about in Romans 8. Romans 8 is not just a great chapter about salvation. It's a great chapter about who you are now and what you have now. As his adopted son. Look what it says. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery. To fall back into fear. Look at me. Some of you live with a nagging uncertainty and unsettledness and fear. About your condition before God. And your position before God. Your condition before God. And your position before God. He doesn't want you to live that way. Not a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. 
Here's the illustration that came to my mind because I've been reading some history. Civil war was an ugly thing, yes. About an ugly, horrific thing, yes, slavery. But if you read anything about it, I hope you realize when the Emancipation Proclamation was declared by Abraham Lincoln, oh my goodness, did that mean everything was wonderful for our black brothers and sisters? Immediately at the big table, in the big house, being treated just like other white men and women. Absolutely not. You read history and you'll see how wicked men and women continue to find ways to put new little laws in place that didn't sound like they were doing what they were told not to do, but they were still keeping our black brothers and sisters at a disadvantage without the full privileges of what you're supposed to have as an American citizen. That's what some of you are doing as a Christian. You're, you know that you've, the chains of sin have been broken. I've been forgiven. I'm no longer a slave to sin. But you still live with the fear of this, but I'm still not that. I'm not all that. I'm not all that. He wants you to understand, oh my goodness. You don't have to live in fear. You don't have to live in fear. He wants you in the big house, at the big table, where the laughter is, and the lights are, and the music And the assurance and security that I belong. I'm not about to be tapped and say, out. How did you get in here? How did you get in here? How did you get in here? You can't be here. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba. Say it. Father. The spirit... Here's what, here's what the Bible teaches you guys. The spirit himself, it's his job. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. That's a courtroom term. So one of the things he's doing regularly is standing and declaring and test. He's trying to testify to your spirit. When you say, yeah, but yeah, but I'm barely in, I'm barely in. He's like, you're not, you're not. The spirit of Jesus is testifying to your spirit. About who you are. Are you listening? Don't argue back. Don't shout him down. The spirit. The spirit. Bears witness with our spirit. That we are not just forgiven enemies. Held at arm's length. That we are children of God. And if children. Then heirs. Heirs. You belong. You have everything that Jesus has. God the Father sees you in the family with Jesus. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. This is not the only place that talks this way. It's the same thing Paul was talking about in Galatians 4. When he says, but when the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Most of you have got that part. I know I've been forgiven. I was on the slave block. To redeem means to purchase back a slave. You know you've been purchased, that you're no longer a slave of sin. But you've stopped right there. This verse doesn't stop right there. To redeem those who were under the law. So that is always a purpose clause. In the Greek, it's a, it's a henna clause. Henna. What's the purpose? Just to be forgiven? No, more so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
And here's the implications. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a, say it, son. Son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, please don't make a misstep here. This is not a name it and claim it, blab it and grab it verse. Oh, the king's kids go first class. And so now I'll get a, a Cadillac, a Lexus. Uh, folks, all that is just dust. All that's going to burn up. He wants something better than stuff in this world for you. He wants you to know who you are fully and all that is yours spiritually. Where you stand, your condition and your position, your condition and your position and your condition and your position because it changes your level of joy. It changes your peace. It changes your confidence. It changes your heart. And you start saying, I got to tell somebody else about my father, about this house, about this place and about the son, Jesus, who brings people into this kind of life. I want others to have this. Now, as wonderful as all this sonship talk is, to really appreciate it, you've got to understand what the biblical writers meant when they kept saying, you're no longer a slave, but a son, a son, a son. And perhaps some of you with gender-sensitive ears maybe have even been thinking, or when you read your Bible, say, why does he always talk about sons and not daughters? And not daughters, not daughters. Well, let me help you understand a little more. It is no slight to women. Keep it the way it is. Because here was the deal. In that day, it's not the way it is now, and that's probably good. The son was the one who got everything the father had. The son was the one that got everything the father had. Sonship entailed so much more than it does today. Vicky and I have divided up our stuff and sat down with an attorney and law, lawyer and all that. We've got it all divided up. Our three girls get as much as our two boys. It's a different, better day regarding stuff. But in that day, the son was the one who got everything the father had. In fact, if you were a local magistrate or civil leader of some sort... That position, with all of its power and privilege, went automatically to your son by virtue of nothing more than he is the son. There was no election, no campaign expenses, and no political party had to back you. He gets it because he is the son. The rank, status, wealth, An entire estate of the father went to the son. He didn't have to earn it, deserve it, or prove he could handle it. It was his by virtue of being the son. And so now God calls us sons. I want you to let that sink in for a minute. Because God by his spirit wants you, desperately wants you, To understand more of what God is saying about you and giving to you. 
And in fact, once again, this is an example of the Bible doing more for women in its day than you could imagine. It was radical, radical, radical that the wording is the way it is. Because the Bible was actually elevating the role of women and saying, oh my goodness, in God's kingdom, regarding salvation, men and women, when they put their trust in Jesus, have now been given all the wealth and position and favor and acceptance and love of the Father. This is not just for guys. In a day when women could not inherit wealth or status or the estate of the father, Paul says, you are all now sons of God. That's what he says in Galatians 3. Listen to it. For in Christ Jesus, he's talking to, this letter went to a church filled with men and women. To a church filled with free people and slaves. To a church filled with Jews and Gentiles. All three of these categories had been big deals. Oh my goodness, it was a big deal. Who's a Jew and who's a pagan? It was a big deal. Who's free? Who's a slave? In that day, it was a much more big deal as far as what you get and what you don't. Who's a man? Who's a woman? And so here now is Paul saying, inspired by the Holy Spirit, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you, of you as were baptized into Christ and have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That was radical, radical. Now, some people wrongly go to that passage and say, well, there's, there's a reason to say there's no difference between men and women regarding roles in, in the church, who should preach roles in the home. That's not what he was doing. He's talking about regarding salvation for your condition and your position is standing before God. Now, everyone is equal in their inheritance, their acceptance, their love, their honor. All are sons. Sons, what that meant in that day. And if you're still not convinced that your identity in Christ is a big deal, let me help you a little more. Here's what's going to happen. Some of you are already down this path. Some of you maybe aren't yet, but I would love to keep you off of it. If you do not truly embrace, not just forgiveness, but your sonship, your identity in Christ, here's what's going to happen. If you're not solid on who you are in Christ and settled in his love, I mean love, he loves you. He loves you like he loves his son, Jesus. If you're not settled in that, you will spend a lifetime looking for it someplace else and trying to find it in somebody else. That's what you'll start doing. That's what you'll start doing. And here's the other thing. You will stay frustrated with your earthly relationships, especially the people you care about the most, a spouse or kids or friends or church family members. You will be regularly frustrated with everybody because they will begin to crumble under the weight of your identity expectations and your desperate need for love and approval. Guess why? 
they can't bear the weight of that. God never designed any human relationship to bear the full weight of your identity expectations and need for love and approval. That has to come from your relationship with Jesus. And when it does, you begin to let up on those around you. You don't need as much because of what you're getting from Him. You'll head down a path of frustration, and you'll just constantly say, why don't I have better people in my life? Why don't I have better people in my life? And why is life so hard? Why is life so hard? Why is life so hard? The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard basically talks about this same thing in his book, A Sickness Unto Death, where he says, sin is building Your life or identity on anything but God. Building your life. Building your life and your identity on anything but God. Whether it's self, whether it's kids, whether it's family, whether it's friends, whether it's image, whether it's pleasure, whether it's work, whether it's vocation, achievement, talent. Doesn't matter what you do. If you go somewhere else, even to good things... They were never designed to be God things that could support you and sustain you. You will watch them crumble while you complain about them letting you down. But they were never designed to do what you're trying to get them to do. They can't. They can't. And here's what, here's what you'll experience. And maybe some of you know this. You will be in a constant state of some form of crisis or meltdown. Crisis or meltdown. Crisis or meltdown. Because here's what happens. The Bible does not teach there's a formula to avoid trials and suffering and disappointments. Welcome to a fallen, broken world. I just read James 1 in my own quiet time last week. Count it all joy when, not if, you fall into various trials. It's going to happen. There's no formula. Here's what you can control. How you respond to them. And here's what some of you don't realize. Some of you are so guilty of always looking at everybody else and saying, my trials are harder. My stuff's so much harder. Mine's so much harder. Mine's so much harder. I don't mean to be cruel, my friend, but you're wrong. You're wrong. Here's what's really going on. When you head into trials and suffering and disappointment, that's why you'll see people have very similar trials and respond in two very different ways. What's going on? Many times what's going on is this that I'm pushing right here. If when one person heads into the same trial, whether it's prostate cancer, breast cancer, unemployment, rebellious kids, you name it. Same stuff. One person heads into it and all it is, it is, it is an external trial or season of suffering and disappointment. It's hard. Don't hear me saying, oh, praise the Lord. I love this. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. No, no, it's hard. But it's not devastating. When someone has placed their identity and built all their identity and their life around their kids or their health or their career and their vocation or you name it, it is then devastating. It magnifies the level of pain and fear you will feel as you go through it. This person whose identity isn't built around that knows it's hard. They weep, they cry, but it's not like 
devastating. I can't go on. This person, if that's what you built your identity and your world around, you'll say, I can't go on. I can't go on. I can't go on. Oh, I know it's been a difficult year on so many levels. But if you have found yourself, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I have been scared this year. Yes. I have been startled and disturbed this year. I could go on. I've even had moments of being very angry this year. But if you have found yourself, because I've had all those emotions and moments, and then I've had delightful times in my chair with my Bible saying, Oh, yes. Hands up. Thank you, Lord. My entire thinking reoriented. And I needed about every 24 hours the next morning. Oh, he's on his throne. He's on his throne. He's on his throne. When Nebuchadnezzar reigned, when Cyrus reigned, when... So I've had both. And I've been able to keep going with joy and keep serving other people and stay hopeful. If this year, if you were honest, you have found yourself in a constant state of crisis and some form of total meltdown, then you should probably consider what have I been building my world around? Because a lot of things this year that people build their worlds around have been taken or shaken. What have I been building my world around? And what have I adopted as my identity, as my identity? My real source of hope and peace. Believe it or not, this false identity or idolatry, is really what it is, is what's at the root of all the political polarization today. Oh my goodness. And the hate that you see, listen to me, the root problem is much deeper than, oh, we've lost a sense of bipartisanship. <laughs> no doubt. Oh, we're no longer exercising civility and diplomacy as we talk to to people from the other camp. Oh, no doubt. But the Bible always calls us to look below the surface. Why? It's not enough to say, oh, we've lost a sense of bipartisanship. Oh, we've lost etiquette and civility and diplomacy. Why? Let me tell you why. I'll tell you why. Everything is ramped up to a volume and a rhetoric and a level of hate that we have not seen before. The root problem is a lack of worship and trust in God. We used to have millions of Americans, both Republicans and Democrats, both who worshiped and trusted God while they thought very differently about politics. And now we have millions of Americans. That's not what disturbs me. Millions of Americans, sadly, Even Christians, Christians who no longer trust God. Oh, you may say it with your lips. Your actions testify differently, my friend, who no longer trust God, but have placed their hope in and staked their very lives on a political party or system or form of government. And that's why they go nuts. When their party is threatened or is not in control because their ultimate hopes and desires and longings and security were riding on that party. We're finding things out this year, you guys. We're finding out where people actually place their hope, their security, 
their identity, why they do what they do. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he wrote this eight to ten years ago, but oh my goodness, it's like he wrote it last week. Listen to what he says. One of the signs that an object is functioning as an idol is that fear becomes one of the chief characteristics of life. We've got a whole lot of fear right now, which means love is off the table. When there's idolatry, there's fear. There's fear because you're fearful that your thing you have to have is, is not going to happen. It's threatened. It's threatened. It's threatened. So I'm afraid. And I've got to attack. Fear. When we center our lives on the idol, we become dependent on it. If our counterfeit God is threatened in any way, our response is complete panic. We do not say, what a shame. How difficult. But rather, this is the end. There's no hope. That's how people are talking. Even Christians. This may be a reason why so many people now respond to U.S. political trends in such an extreme way. Oh, listen to this. They have put the kind of hope in their political leaders and policies that once was reserved for God and the work of the gospel. When their political leaders are out of power, they experience a death and a poisonous environment is created. Does it seem like we have a poisonous environment right now? Oh, my goodness. And so we need believers to not jump on the same bad way. Do I wish America would stay on a path that is more like what I saw growing up? Did I like that? Absolutely. But folks, if it doesn't, I'm going to vote. I voted. I told my adult kids who to vote for. I didn't tell you because I don't think that's my job. But please don't think, oh, Brad doesn't care at all. Ah. America's going to hell in a handbasket. I do care. But I also sleep good. I care about something else more. I care about the people of God being the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ. It's a great day. So many people are scared. So much has been shaken and taken. The world doesn't need us to act just like them and join them in their hate fest and align ourselves with their little committee now to... They need us to look different where someone would say, I know this isn't what you wanted. I know this isn't who you voted for. Why are you still smiling? How do you have joy? Why are you loving? Why do you still have peace? And you get to tell them about Jesus. If they see you just as angry, just as upset, just as panicky, just as fearful and depressed, they won't ask you about what you have because they already got all that. It's time for the people of God to be the people of God in a world and a country that is rapidly changing. Do I hope God might do something amazing and bring us back? Sure. And I'll keep voting along those lines of what I think would do it. But if we keep heading in this direction, we still get to be the people of God like other countries have always been. News alert! Other believers have lived under far worse governments. Don't act like we can't be Christians. And yes, we can and should and must, must, must. I had another point, but I gave you so much extra goodies. I don't have time to talk about it. I'll let you look at it yourself. I was going to show you that when you embrace your sonship, oh, it ushers something else in. You begin to understand that you have unlimited access to God as your father. Notice Paul didn't just say, oh, father, father, 
in a very you know, dignified, polite, but distant kind of way. Did you hear two words he used in Romans 8 and Galatians 4 say it? Abba. That was an Aramaic word, a Near Eastern word that's actually hard to translate into English. And it was a word that meant Papa. Young children said it as they reached out their hands to their daddy. That's what he wants you to understand. And he, and, and he actually, when we get to Luke chapter 11, Lord willing, in 2022, that's when I have that sketched out. I'm a planner. I plan ahead. If Jesus doesn't return, we're going to get to Luke, 20, Luke 11 in 2022, where Jesus, when he tells us how to pray, oh my goodness, he uses a word that the English translators choke on. Most of them didn't really want to translate it for what it really means. It's a word that means persistent, but it's a word that means persistent because you actually have no sense of protocol or etiquette. You are so bold. It's audaciously, boldly like a child who has no sense of right or wrong. No matter how important a father is, if you notice how fathers, usually if they're a good dad, their child can just burst in to the office, to wherever. Why? She's, her, he's, she's his child. We can just burst in and you don't have to say, have I been living good enough? Can I go to the father? Just, you're his child. Abba! Audaciously, boldly, the ESV comes the closest to getting it right. When it says in Luke 11, impudence. Impudence actually has a sense of rude, offensive. You just ask. You just gush and ask because you know your dad is for you and loves you unconditionally because of his son. So I'm not going to be afraid to ask. I'm not going to be afraid to ask. I'm not going to be afraid to ask. Oh, listen to me. When your sonship, not just forgiveness, gets a hold of you, it changes how you live. Regardless of circumstances, setbacks, and what other people may say or do to you. It changes. It changes. When Jesus hung on the cross, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you ever think about, he didn't say, Father, oh, Father. Because in that moment, he set aside the privilege and power and protection of his own sonship. So that he could purchase it for us forever. He became sin for us. So that we could not just become forgiven, held at arm's length sinners. Sons in the big house at the big table where the lights are on and the music is loud and laughter flows freely because you know you're not just forgiven. You're accepted, fully accepted, loved, adopted. Oh God, thank you so much for your word. And thank you for the power of the gospel that does more than just forgive our sins and leave us as alienated, forgiven enemies. And you still say, I don't want to see you. I don't want you around me. Oh, my goodness, what you've done in your son to take enemies and move them into your presence as sons with full rights, inheritance, privileges, acceptance, love. God... Grip us with this truth so that we could live 
wide open. Take risks. Be some of the most loving people in our world because we are so loved and have no doubt about it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.